in the ranks of the nuns and monks because people were saying, who's going to succeed you? Who's going to be our teacher? And he said to them, he said, be a light unto yourselves. He said, take refuge in yourselves. Take refuge in the Dharma. He said, as the moon follows the path of the stars, he said, follow your heart. His last words were, now then, he said, I remind you, subject to decay are all things. Strive diligently for liberation. Subject to decay are all things. Strive diligently for liberation. As our practice deepens and we come to know the true nature of who it is that we are, there comes to be a great love and respect for the Buddha a real gratitude for these teachings and certainly a great sense of privilege for the opportunity of traveling on the same path of walking the same noble path as he did and the truth really is can we through the passion of our own efforts reflect the Buddha's journey in our own And reflecting on this life of the Buddha can arouse a lot of faith and, and inspiration for those times that are difficult along the way. And also knowing the difficulties and the joys of his own practice are really a way of connecting our own journey with his journey. So as we take refuge in one another, really what we are doing is taking refuge in a lineage that goes back two and a half thousand years ago. Taking refuge in one another and really in a very direct way supporting all others that are walking a spiritual path. Because what is really true about this practice is that it is not a personal path that we really are practicing for the liberation of all beings and the question must be can our efforts really reflect the truth that we are walking this path for one another Thank you. Usually when I prepare these talks, I go through them a couple of times, and I did it with this one, and <laughs> I thought it was going to be a really short talk.
appreciate it in general. I got stuck at uh, your story about my story. The story you told yeah. <laughs> about um, the Buddha in one of his incarnations of giving um, his children away as slaves. And I was really sitting here thinking, trying to sort of get this, the meaning of that sort of myself. And it was hard to get beyond that the sense of giving away something that seems to hurt someone else, in other words, that. And I just would like you to speak and put some, that some sense of that symbolism for me. Personally, I'd I'd be really interested to hear anybody else's um, feelings about it. You know, I take these stories in terms of the the specifics of them um, more metaphorically. You know, that the spiritual path, certainly my experience, has been one of enormous letting go. I mean letting go both on the physical level, but also enormous letting go on, um, on the other levels also. Letting go of, the, uh, of ideas of who I am and how things should be and how things are. And that, you know, for me that story has meaning insofar as the extent to which one needs to consider the question of renunciation and letting go, that in the end, um, addressing the question of birth and death requires the deepest um, letting go of, um, of who it is that we think we are. And so, for me, what is stirring about that story is not the specifics. I mean, I was thinking when I was doing it, oh God, you know, here's this guy giving away his wife, you know. <laughs> Though I'm getting into deep water here. <laughs> but um, that's really how I, you know, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think for me it's just that sense of how. You know, you just can make a judgment at the time, in other words, that you have to live with it. In other words, that could be a moral line for me. And that's just what that represents. In other words, as you, as I move through my life, the decisions that I make, you know, I need a place that all I can know is what I know. But if I think to myself, in other words, in order to be generous, I must do this. Mm. Then it's harmless, you know. And it's yeah. sort of that sense of what that really. What that well, I think with generosity, certainly, you know, the injunction is not that we have to give everything away, you know, because we can get really strung out in giving. You know, I think some people, when they hear about the perfection of generosity, they feel, oh wow, you know, I've just got to give away everything, and I think that that is is not discriminating wisdom. 
I don't think that there's wisdom there. I think that that um, we practice generosity in ways that are appropriate to us in each moment. You know, and I think that another way symbolically that that story might have meaning is that we do have to let go of our children really fully. And so, you know, in another way, that's my, you know, that might be what it's about. Again, I don't know, I hope that you understand what I'm going to ask. Mm. In terms of desire, and I hear you talking about the desire to attain enlightenment, mm. how is that different than any other desire? You know, mm. can't that desire really be crooked in a sense too? As mm. in, like I desire is called TV, or I desire enlightenment. You know, what, yeah, I do. There's, there's, this, um, there's this time in the practice where, where I've heard people speak about the foul smell of enlightenment. <laughs> you know, and that is um, that as the, the mind reaches places where there is great possibility, where where the factors of enlightenment are that mature and developed that um, illumination is possible. You know, so they're all in balance there. And what can be the greatest hindrance at that time is the desire for enlightenment. That it's like, you know, you think, I'm, I'm there. So, yes. And it's like, you know, and you're out of balance, you know? And so, you know, one does need to, you know, aspire to something, you know? One has a call to destiny, you know, that provides us with a lot of juice to do what needs to be done, to look at ourselves, you know? To, to practice in whatever way is meaningful. At the same time, reaching out for enlightenment and grasping for it and going for it, can become its own stumbling block. So actually, that's something that we all need to really work with very carefully. That we both need to, you know, have our eyes, you know, on on, on our star. But at the same time, you know, that's why you know I said at one point in the talk, and I was actually intending to to spend more time there, that. All these lifetimes say to me that really each moment is really what's important. I don't know if I've had many lifetimes and how many lifetimes there are to go or if it's going to be this one, I don't know. So, and it's like if I get caught up in that, it's just extra stuff. And so just to do each moment's work in the end seems to me to make the, the, the most sense. But we're in this for the long haul, you know? I mean, it could take a long time. Or it might not, you know? It might be the next moment. And so that's why, like, each moment's important. If, if in the moment we're leaning forward, wanting enlightenment, grasping an enlightenment, we're hooked again. You know? 
Does that answer the question, Mary? Yeah. I, I guess when uh, when you're telling a story about him like laying in the mud, you know, it's, yeah. like, it's like to make desire for enlightenment. Yeah. Well, the fact is that he could have been fully enlightened in that moment. He had the possibility, but what he decided to do was to not. That he would have been what is called an arahant, which is an enlightened being. But the difference between an arahant and a Buddha is that an Buddha, a, a Buddha perfects these ten perfections and then becomes like a real heavy-duty guy. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the significant difference. So he pulled back from enlightenment there and, you know, and worked on his perfections over lifetimes so that he was able to turn the wheel of the Dharma again, which he did do 100,000 world cycles later. And in each world cycle is like an eon. It's not a lifetime. It's like a lot. You know. So like the scope of this talk is who knows? Is all the talk about world cycles to also be understood metaphorically? Sorry, Thomas. Is, it, is all the talk of world cycles, world cycles and these various categories and names and well, you know, it depends. I mean, you know, everybody has their own relationship with this. You know, I mean, some people see the Buddha as an archetype, you know, as an archetype for, for human evolution. That who he was is like, you know, the perfect archetype for what it means <coughs> to question the human condition, you know. For some people, he's a real, live person, you know. For, for other people, he's, um, you know, someone that they take refuge in because he's a symbol of possibility. You know, and that's why I said, you know, at that point, that really the question is, how do we relate to him? And how does that relationship change? And so, you know, I suggest, becoming familiar with his life because what that does is it, for me, it demystified him. It made him just an ordinary guy, you know? You know, and it makes the work to be done that much more possible. You know, if you relate to him as this on-high God person that achieved the impossible, then, you know, it's like you are setting up a duality there that puts you in a sort of secondary position. But as you get to know his life and see that he struggled in the same way as we did. I mean, you must read these accounts of what he did in the forest for six years, you know. For a couple of years, he only ate one piece of rice a day, you know. He used to hang upside down from branches of trees over fires and, you know. All Just this. an ordinary guy. <laughs> <laughs> so everyday meditator, you know. <laughs> But it's like, you know, for me, for me, the thing about it that was neat was that the more you read about him, the more you see that he was really just another human being. Just another human being, you know? 
and he was extraordinary. But he was dealing with the same stuff, you know. And um, it's very powering that, you know. It's very powering. It makes it all so much more possible. And so, if you want to relate to it metaphorically, or as an archetype, or, or, or as a good friend, you know, and, you know, of course, some people are very devotional in their relationship with him, you know. In the, some of the monks in the monastery where I was in used to sit, and I did it sometimes too, used to sit there for hours just gazing with, like, adoration and devotion, you know, at, at his image. You know, just out of gratitude. And some people have a whole lifetime of practice of just putting flowers and gifts and abundances at the feet of, you know. When you talk about enlightenment, it sounds so different than all other conditions or states. I don't hear the coming and the going and the passing. It's a coming attained. Is that true that it's it's qualitatively different than anything else that doesn't come and go? So you know it, mm. and then you don't. Well, it has a beginning and an end. Well, I can't speak from my experience. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they call nirvana, or enlightenment, the unconditioned. And what that implies is that it's a state of being that is not conditioned. And, you know, his final words were, subject to decay are all conditioned things. Mm -hmm. And so the unconditioned is not subject to decay, it endures. So, you know, it's a, it's a state of being that is the only thing that is unchanging. And that is why, you know, again and again in his lifetimes, he's born wealthy, he renounces the wealth for understanding to, to go beyond birth and death, to the unconditioned. There are the most complicated and elusive uh, books, tomes, written on the mind that is unconditioned. And, you know, some people really get into reading that stuff, you know. I don't. It can drive you crazy. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about destiny. Um, for a long time, I've been sort of wandering around in my life going, what? Asking us to kind of play our own destinies before nothing came up. Um, Joseph Campbell um, talks about the different stages in the process of the evolution of the human spirit, when you looked at certain great spiritual people, 
he saw their lives in a couple of different contexts. And when he looked at the Buddha and others, he said, you know, the first like stage in the evolution of the human spirit is the, the beginning of the first stage is the call to destiny. And so the call to destiny of the Buddha was when he saw Dipankara and he said, I'm going to be a Buddha, you know. So when I was asking us to reflect on our own particular call to destiny, what I was suggesting is that moment or those moments or that period in time when there was a stirring in our own particular hearts and we, for whatever reason, in whatever way, decided that, you know, what is this? There must be something greater. I'm going to begin looking, da 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 da, not knowing what it is because, of course, we can't, but just not going along, as I said in the talk, you know, with the superficiality, with what is petty, with what is mediocre, but, but sensing that there is something greater and beginning our own quest for hopefully understanding. <coughs> what is more. So it's really the call to destiny that I will talk about. In terms of what is destiny, I can't of course answer that question, you know. But it's the moment of calling that certainly for me is a very passionate time. It's when I sort of deeply questioned my life as it was and made changes. And so um, what I was saying at the beginning is that we can lose touch with that so often. <clears throat> and in our spiritual practice, in our lives, it can just become sort of dull again, you know? And so touching that seems really important, particularly at times when we're feeling uninspired. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Is that one of the ten? Well, <laughs> one of the perfections? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that another of the perfections is the perfection of renunciation, which is um, really letting go. And one of the ways, one of the forms in which that can happen, for example, is when you go into, um, when you take robes, you know, and become a nun or a monk. And um, the question of giving is a very central part of that process because when you assume robes, you really are dependent on the support and the generosity of others. You are not able to buy your own food, or dig your own food, or cook your own food. So when, when I was a monk, each day, the food that I ate was the food that was given to me. And uh, the lessons that I learned in receiving are really lessons that uh, endure right up until this moment. Uh, and um, beginning 
to experience how difficult it is to receive was a part of what that time was all about too. One also, when one is in the privileged position of having all one's needs um, met by the community in which one lives, one begins to see how, um, how one's own efforts then um, become that much more important. Because as a monk, I felt in a very direct way that my efforts and my practice were also for those people who were not as lucky as I was to have the opportunity of doing what I was doing. So in a way, they were serving me, I was serving them. And it was this wonderful back and forth. So, you know, I think that in a very real way, the perfections are both about giving and receiving. I think generosity is, is um, emphasized so much because it is the tendency of the mind so often to, to hold on. And so the practice of generosity is a contradiction of the clinging of the mind. And in the Buddhist time, people were not allowed to meditate before they had established themselves in morality and in generosity. The Buddha thought it wasn't a good idea for people to even begin practicing until they cultivated those qualities to some degree in their lives. This is also uh, sort of a question about um, seeking, seeking enlightenment. I've been feeling in the, maybe the past year that in my practice I've reached a point after years of uh, really striving for this something out there, feeling very passionate about that. Um, much more of a sense of being at home with being a human being and being born and dying and that that's enough it's okay. And that in fact being just being human um, is very beautiful and very difficult and um, and that that's great. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the side effects of that is um, quite a bit of a quenching of that fire to to seek and to sort of get the answers and more a more sense of just wanting to explore being human and, and ex expand the range of what I can feel. And I just wonder if you could if you could say something about what at this point for me maybe feels like a bit of a tension between the way I've been, which is this real seeking um, for truth for what it's all about. And this other, which is a sort of a real contentment with the way things are. And it's, it certainly has been my experience that um, that one of the beauties of the unfolding of the practice 
is that we do come to know deeper levels of reconciliation and harmony within. And uh, so many of the ways in which we reached out of us, outside of ourselves for meaning and for wholeness no longer become necessary. And that, you know, as the factors of mind of, of say, equanimity develop more, we just become more easily who we truly, authentically are. And that there is a feeling of far greater peace and harmony, both inwardly and very often outwardly too, in the way we live our lives. And so, perhaps to some degree, the idea of a fire and of truth being there and of having that flame was a necessary part of what that experience was. But it seems to me that if the feeling now is one of reconciliation and deeper harmony within, that that really is, it would seem to me to be a very obvious part of the unfolding of the practice. I'm sure it must feel that much easier, more composed, more settled, more real. Does that... You know, one of the things, you know, For me, certainly in the practice, is that the enduring challenge is to let go as much as possibly to each of the moments that has already passed and the way we were and what had meaning then, you know, and to enter into each moment with as much freshness, with as much of a beginner's mind as possible. Because certainly there were ways of being and things that we did that had great meaning and that served us well. But those are not necessarily the stuff of this moment. And so it's just constant letting go all along the, the way so that we can enter freshly and fully into the next moment and the next moment. That seems to be what the practice becomes more and more. The, the challenge of the practice seems to become more and more. I've done it again. <laughs> Maybe sit together for a moment, please. love and peace and harmony. May all beings be free from suffering. Next week, Fred von Ullman will be here. He's one of the teachers currently teaching at the Insight Meditation Society.
it's really a great and splendid moment in the life of any woman or man when he or she heeds his or her own particular call to destiny and begins their spiritual journey. For many it's a path out of mediocrity and superficiality and an aspiration really for a way of being that transcends the separation and the pettiness that abounds so much in our world today. It's really a stirring moment of great passion. It's a time when we must begin to go beyond the slavery of our fears, beyond the idea of security, and beyond also all that is familiar in our world, to that place, really, where we begin to address the fundamental questions of what it is to be born human, the questions of birth and death, the question of who really is it that we are, and what in essence is the nature of the world in which we live in. It's really the stuff of great passion and excitement. And I want to ask you all, just for a moment please, to reflect on your own particular call to destiny. What is your highest purpose in being born? What is your deepest impulse and motivation for walking a spiritual path, for perhaps practicing the Dharma? your highest purpose? Why is it that you meditate and are willing to be inward? For me, it is incredible that in spite of the beauty and the simplicity for me of this incredible practice, in spite of the fact that it is so potentially free, in spite too of the fact that this process of unfolding it's such a natural process, as those of you who were here last week and heard Joseph's talk, how beautiful and natural that unfolding is. And in spite too of the fact that this meditation practice is for many 
fundamental to their spiritual path. In spite of all this, it is incredible to me that there are so often and frequently those times when the practice seems commonplace. When in the repetition of the daily practice the effort seems vague and seems dull and seems lackluster, it seems that as though at those times I've completely lost touch with my own particular call to destiny and why it is that I'm making the effort in the first place. The passion of that call seems so vague and so distant. Perhaps at times it is the same for you too. How is it really then that at those times which must arise, those times of irritation and difficulty and limitation are a part of our exploration of the nature of things. Those periods of boredom and frustration, those periods of difficulty in the body, the cold of winter, the black flies of the summer, these are the stuff of our practice and you can be sure they were the stuff of the practice of the Buddha too. And yet it seems so easy that we caught, get caught up in the drama of it all and lose touch with the vast scope of the context in which we're working here. One of the ways of reconnecting with the passion of my own call to destiny is recollecting the life of the Buddha. It's something that for me and for many brings great joy to the mind. Because really in recognizing the power and the magnitude of his own quest, we can then reconnect with our own deepest impulses and motivations for practicing the Dharma too. Another reason why it's a, it's a good idea perhaps to recollect the life of the Buddha is that for us here in the West it is so easy as we get on with practicing the practice to lose touch with the incredible tradition out of which this simple and beautiful practice comes. And so reconnecting again with the heritage of it all is a very stirring ritual for many people. Because there is no question that we here tonight are a part of a lineage that has been in existence for two and a half thousand years. I must confess that in preparing tonight's talk, I've had a lot of fun and uh, there's been a lot of joy in my heart as I've reflected on what it is that I wanted to cover. I really hope that it will be the same for you. Tonight I want to look at this question of passion 
And doing that in the context of the life of the Buddha. For me, his, his life really exemplifies spiritual courage and spiritual perseverance too. But a question that must arise for many people when they first hear the Dharma and when they hear of the Buddha is how is it that one relates to him? For me, at the beginning of my practice, I related to the Buddha as this somewhat vague, distant being who lived two and a half thousand years ago. I felt really quite disconnected from him. And my relationship really was with the various images that populated the meditation halls that I found myself in. But certainly, as the years have unfolded, that has changed considerably. He really now is an ever-present inspiration in my life. Someone who is a symbol of the greatest possibility for me. Like me, he was born a human two and a half thousand years ago. He had great difficulties and through his own effort and through the zeal of his determination, he attained the deepest and most fundamental understanding of the nature of things, of the power of the heart. His life really need not be removed or be abstract. Rather, he may reveal the nature of the universal in us all. His life can become a mirror for the Buddha nature of each one of us. One of the things that's interesting to know is that the teachings that he gave and the circumstances of his life were not committed to paper until many centuries after his death. And so from the very beginning, the nuns and monks and the lay people used to chant the teachings and chant the story of his life. And that really is how um, the information of his teachings comes to us now. I'm also going to be quoting quite extensively from the scriptures to give you um, a further um, appreciation of the richness from which this all comes. It's kind of like story time. <laughs> Siddhartha Gautama was born two and a half thousand years ago. But really the story of his life began a lot earlier than that. 100,000 world cycles before his incarnation as a Buddha, he was born as the youth Sumedha. He was born into a very prosperous family. And at an early age, seeing the enormous wealth and abundance that was a part of his circumstance, he really began to question it and saw that there really was no lasting happiness in that all. And so giving away everything that he owned to the poor he decided to move into homelessness. 
and went to a snow-capped mountain and built himself a hermitage there out of leaves and out of poles. And he practiced apparently really zealously for many years and came to a deep understanding of the nature of things. He was a master of concentration and of psychic powers and of morality. And one day when he was in his hermitage, he saw all these villagers passing by the place where he was living, their faces radiant and very excited. And they said to him, a Buddha has arisen in the land and we are going to see him. He's coming along the road at the bottom of the mountain. And he said, oh, please, please, can I join you? And he followed them down and they flanked the road on, on, on either side. And uh, he saw Dipankara, the Buddha, coming up from the distance. And then he looked down in front of him and he saw this great big puddle of mud over there. And he realized that Dipankara and his nuns and monks were going to be passing right in front and moving through this puddle. If only I can keep the Maya from touching him, thought Sumedha, great merit will certainly arise. Thereupon Sumedha laid himself face down in the mud, <laughs> exclaiming, Let the Buddha with all his disciples tread on me. While he lay there upon the ground, a multitude of thoughts flashed through his head. He considered first that he might attain arahanship, which is full enlightenment, and burn up all his faults that very day. But why, he reflected further, should I enter nirvana without aiding others? I'll first achieve enlightenment and become a Buddha. I'll arrest the whirlpool of birth and death. I'll climb the sides of Dharma's ship and convey both men and gods to yonder shore. Dipankara, the Buddha, knowing of all worlds, stepped up to where Sumedha lay and stayed his foot. And turning his face of radiant glory to the crowd, the world-honored Buddha declared, Behold this ascetic and mark the austerity of his discipline. Innumerable eons hence, this very recluse will become a supreme Buddha and revolve the wheel of Dharma in the world, even as I do today. Pleased with the Buddha's words, the people cheered, saying, If we fail to grasp the Dharma now, if we miss Lord Dipankara's words, we can count on standing face to face with this other Buddha in time to come. And so it was in that moment that Sumedha heard his own particular call to destiny. And it was in that moment that he became a bodhisattva, which is somebody who both aspires to full enlightenment and at the same time aspires to alleviate the suffering of all beings. The Jataka tales are a collection of stories of the lives of the Buddha. It was during these lives that he perfected the perfections of mind of the Buddha. There are hundreds of these tales, and each one he cultivates um, a particular perfection of mind. 
There are ten of these perfections, and, and they are the perfections of generosity, of morality, renunciation, wisdom, effort, patience, honesty, resolve, equanimity, and loving-kindness. And it was once he brought to complete perfection each one of these factors of mind that he was then poised for the understanding of a Buddha. I'd like to share with you a couple of the lifetimes during which the Bodhisattva worked on perfecting these qualities of mind. One of these rebirths, the Bodhisattva was born a hare in the forest, a rabbit. And he lived in the forest with three other wise animals. One was an otter, one was a jackal, and one was a monkey. And each day the four of them would gather and the hare would teach the Dharma to his three friends. One day he was looking up at the, at the sky and saw the configuration of the stars and the moon and said to um, his friends, he said, tomorrow is a holy day and so you three creatures undertaking moral conduct must keep this day holy. A gift that is given by one established in moral conduct is of great fruit. Therefore, if any beggars arrive, give to each of them the food that would have been eaten by you. They assented, and each went off. The next morning, the otter, apparently, went down to the Ganges River, and digging up some soil, came upon three fish that had been buried there. And he called out three times, Do these fish belong to anybody? And nobody replied. And so he gathered them up and took them back to his laird. The jackal, meantime, went off and found a spit with some meat on. And he too called out. He said, Do, do these pieces of meat belong to anyone? And nobody replied. And he took this meat back to his own laird. The monkey, meanwhile, had found this tree laden with mangoes, and he picked a branch and took the fruit back to his lair. But the Bodhisattva, which is the hare, issuing forth at this time, thought he would eat some shrubs and grass. But as he was lying, lying down in his own form, he considered it's not possible for me to give grass to beggars who come to me. And I have no sesame and no husked rice or anything of that kind. If any beggar comes to me, I must give the flesh of my own body. Now Shaka, who is the king of heaven, was looking down on all of this. And it says here, by the might of his moral conduct, the throne of Shaka showed signs of heat. So the throne of the King of Heaven started to stir when the Bodhisattva made this declaration. So what Chakra decided to do was he decided to come down and, uh, and test the resolve of the Bodhisattva. And so he went to the laird of the otter 
and uh, disguised as a Brahmin and said, I'm so hungry. He said, I haven't got any food to eat and I really want to practice the Dharma. Please give me some food. And the otter said, sure, you know, and, and offered him the fish. <clears throat> and he said, just hold on to it, I'll be back in a short while for the fish. He went on to the jackal and said, uh, again, I want so much to practice the Dharma, the Dharma, but I'm hungry. Please give me some food. And the jackal offered him the meat. And then he went to the monkey and the same thing happened. He was offered the mangoes. He then went to the hare. And this is what the hare said when he was asked for food. He said, when he heard him, the bodhisattva was delighted. He said, Brahman, you have done well in coming to me for food. Today I will give you a gift never given by me before. But because you are virtuous, you shall not cause the destruction of living creatures. Go, friend, and when you have collected sticks and have got some burning embers, tell me. I, sacrificing myself, will fall into the womb of the burning embers. When my body is roasted and you have eaten the flesh, you can then practice the Dharma. So the Brahmin went off, who, as you know, was Shakya in disguise, and uh, he built a fire, and um, this is what happened. The hare came up, saw the fire, and he said, If there are any small creatures in my fur, be careful lest they die. And shaking his body three times, he offered the whole of his body as a gift sprang upon and alighted rapturously on the heap of burning embers, like a royal goose upon a cluster of lotuses. But the fire could not scorch even a single hair of the Bodhisattva's body. It was as though he'd entered a womb of ice. Addressing the Brahmin, he said, The fire you, you have made was so cool, it's unable to scorch even a single hair of my body. What is this? And then the Brahmin said, I am Shakra and I've come here to test you. And so this was one of the incarnations of the Bodhisattva when he was really working on generosity, very zealously. The next life I want to share with you is the one just before he was enlightened. It was the one uh, before he was born as Siddhartha Gautama. He was born as the youth Visvantara, a prince. And he was born again into a family that was enormously wealthy. His father, the king, presided over a kingdom that was peaceful and that had great prosperity. But Prince Visvantara was known far and wide for his generosity. And one day he was out in the kingly chariot when a Brahmin came up to him and said, Prince, you are known for your generosity far and wide. 
it is fitting that as I don't have anything upon which to travel, that you give me your chariot. And he immediately alighted from the royal chariot, offered it to the Brahmin, and went home and told his father what he'd done. A few weeks later, apparently, he was out traveling on the royal white elephant, and the same thing happened again. Somebody came up to him and said, I don't have an animal on which to travel. It's really only fitting that you make a gift to me of this royal elephant. And he immediately offered the elephant to this Brahmin. Now the subjects of the kingdom, when they heard that he was giving away all the wealth, were a little upset. And so they went to the king and said, this can't continue. You're going to have to send your son into exile because if he continues like this, there's going to be no wealth left in the kingdom. And so apparently the king being an obedient man acceded to the wishes of his subjects and told his son that if he couldn't refrain from giving, that he was going to have to go into exile. He was married, Visvantara was married, and when his wife heard that he was going to go, she was really upset, and so she said that she really wanted to go with him, and that she wanted to bring their two children also. And so, despite the pleadings of the king to remain behind, the four of them set off in the royal chariot into the forest to go and live a life of homelessness also. Well, again, they hadn't got very far in the chariot in which they were traveling when somebody stopped them and said, we hear of your generosity, please make us a gift of your chariot. And so this is what he did. He offered the chariot. Madri turned to Visvatara and said, you know, this is not okay. He said, what are we going to travel in now? And this is what the, uh, the Bodhisattva, he said, the earth with its mountains will be overthrown sooner than I can turn aside from my giving. And so he gave the chariot away. They proceeded on, and one day apparently Madri, his wife, was out in the woods collecting food, and a Brahmin came up to the Bodhisattva and said, I don't have any slaves, and it would be really fitting that you make a gift to me of these children that you have. And he was really distraught. It was a moment of great consternation and challenge to him. And he turned to his children and he said to them, succumbed with grief and his face was wet with tears, he embraced his children and said, O oh, children, there is no unkindness in my heart, but only merciful compassion. As I have manifested virtue for the salvation of the whole world, I must give you a way to attain the highest enlightenment, and myself having attained enlightenment, I may save the worlds which lie devoid of support in the ocean of woes. And so the Brahmin went off with his two children. Now you can imagine when his wife came back, she was really upset. And he told her again, he said, 
mountains can move before I will give up my commitment to generosity. And she said to him, well, if it should ever transpire then that you would need to part with me, know that I am happy with that also. The Bodhisattva, his heart was really heavy. And it said that in that moment also, the throne of Chakra in the heavens above manifested signs of heat. And so Chakra came down again, again in the form of a Brahman. And he came up to the Bodhisattva and said to him, I really need companionship. And I ask that you allow this woman with whom you're traveling to accompany me. And broken-hearted and grief-stricken, he parted with the last one of his family. And the two of them apparently walked off, the Brahmin and Maji, his wife. And it is said that they just got around the corner and Chakra revealed his true identity to Madri. So the anguish didn't last very long. And they came back and uh, Chakra said that he was really impressed with the resolve of the Bodhisattva. And with the power of his mind, he deluded the mind of the Brahmin who'd gone off with the two children. And um, the two children were taken back to the kingdom. And they told the king what had happened, their grandfather. And he told the subjects of his kingdom, and they fetched Visvantara and his wife, brought them back to the kingdom, and installed them on the throne. So that was the life immediately preceding um, the incarnation in which uh, the Buddha was born. Now, you know, I presume that none of us here really have great information about our own particular past lives. It's said that one of the powers of the Buddha's mind is to have real, fundamental and total understanding of all the births that preceded. <coughs> but was, what does seem clear really is that in terms of Buddhist cosmology and in terms of the scriptures, that it is a great privilege for us to be born at a time when the Dharma is flourishing, at a time when it's possible for the teachings of the Buddha to be shared. It's a further incredible good fortune for each of us that we have the sensitivity to both hear the Dharma and then practice the Dharma. And so I would sort of venture to suggest that perhaps each one of us also have many lifetimes during which we too have practiced certain of these perfections, that we can be here today and, uh, and hear the teachings. Reflecting on these Jataka tales imbues me certainly with, uh, with a great feeling of inspiration and gratitude for these teachings. And it also gives me a real sense of the long haul 
that the spiritual journey is really all about. But we have to, in some ways, have a relationship with our path that is one that is long and enduring, that really we can't push the river, that really all we can do is fill each moment with as much life as possible. And that in and of itself must take care of the larger context of things. The passion with which the Buddha persevered and practiced the perfection of his own mind in each moment, in each one of these lifetimes, is really a great inspiration for me. So in prior talks, I've really spoken somewhat about the birth of Siddhartha Gautama and his renunciation. So I'll go through those um, details quite briefly. He was born two and a half thousand years ago into the ruling royal family of the Shakyam tribe on the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. And prior to his birth, there were predictions by holy men at the time that the child that was going to be born was either going to be a great spiritual savior or a universal monarch. And the king, the father of the child to be born, being an ambitious man, would have none of this airy-fairy spiritual stuff. <laughs> and he was determined that his son was going to be a universal monarch someone who would succeed him on, on the throne. And so when the child was born, he was brought up in great luxury. Every abundance was poured upon him. He didn't have any needs that weren't immediately taken care of. It said that he had a home for each season of the year. He had a concubine for his pleasure. And his life was very, very rich and very abundant. When he was 29 years old and married, he decided one day to venture outside of the palace, which he'd never done before. He was going to a nearby flower grove, and it was on his way to this flower grove that he suddenly saw something step out from the side of the road that he'd never seen before. And it was an old person. He'd never seen an old person before. And when he asked his charioteer what this was, Chandaka, the charioteer, said, this is what happens to everybody who is born. And Gautama was really stirred and disturbed by what he'd seen. And he went back to the palace. And a few days later, he set off again to the same flower grove. And this time, he saw a sick person. And again, he said, what is this? And he was told that everybody that is born knows sickness. And again, this was the first time he'd heard of this. He'd been so protective from the truth of old age and sickness. And the third time he set forth, he passed a dead person on the side of the road. 
and he was told that everybody that is born is going to die. Very shaken, he turned the chariot around and began heading home. And as he was heading home, stepping out of the forest was a mendicant, a being of great radiance, who'd shaved his head and had devoted his life to seeking truth and understanding. And when he saw this mendicant, Gautama decided that that was what he wanted to do. He wanted to have an understanding of what it meant to be born human. And if there was a possible happiness beyond the suffering of birth and death. And so he went home, he bade farewell to his wife and child and the king, and set off. These sightings that he had are known as the heavenly messengers. The heavenly messages of the Buddha that awoke him up, <coughs> that ignited the energy of the ten perfections that he'd cultivated all, over all those lifetimes. I wonder for a moment <coughs> if it would be possible for us to reconnect with our own heavenly messages. Those things that perhaps in circumstance or in person that touched us in such a way that ignited our own call to destiny, our own reason for practicing that we might know and see more deeply into the nature of things. Because really, our own heavenly messages are really what it is that we share with the Buddha our own call to destiny. For six years, the Buddha practiced in the forests of India. During those years, he practiced with others, he practiced alone. It's said that he worked with many teachers, but it wasn't long after beginning with each teacher that he realized he'd learned all that they had to teach, and he moved on. It's said that he practiced enormous austerities, great mortifications of the body, in his endeavor to find out what it could mean to transcend the birth and death that he saw all around him. He got to the point where his body was so depleted from the intensity of the practices that he'd been doing that it said that his limbs with their joints resembled nut grass in their sparseness. The mark left by his bottom was like a camel's footprint. Through little food, the bones of his spine were like a row of spindles, and his ribs stuck out like rafters of an old shed. Just as in the deep well the waters may be seen sparkling in the depths, so in the depths of his eye sockets did the luster of his eyes seem sunken. 
And as an unripe gourd cut off from the stalk is shriveled by wind and sun, so was the skin of his head shriveled through little food. Gautama had all but sacrificed his life to his experiment. For many weeks he lay on the ground, a withered, discolored character of the handsome youth who had set out from Kapilavastu nearly six years before to win enlightenment. So pitifully emaciated was his body that people came to stare at him out of curiosity. He realized really that his austerities had brought him to the brink of death and that he was no closer to his understanding than he had been all those years before. And he took a bowl of rice, a bowl of curds, which he'd not done for several years, and felt so fortified by having taken a good meal that he determined that midway between the excess of the life that he'd left and the austerities that he had been practicing, this middle way was really what he believed to be the way to enlightenment. And he was so excited that out of grass he made a place to sit under a tree. And he said, seated facing the east upon the diamond throne, the Bodhisattva uttered a mighty resolution, saying, let only skin and bone remain. Let the flesh and blood of this body dry up, but I shall never abandon the seat until I have attained the supreme and absolute enlightenment. Now it's said that as soon as he sat down, the forces of the mind began an incredible assault on him. And these are personified in the form of Mara, the dark forces of the mind. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands and fourfold darkness, the antagonist hurled against the Savior. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gautama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed his daughters, desire, pining, and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants. But the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily, and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the earth with his fingertips, and thus bid the goddess earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garments at his feet. It said that in the first watch of the night, he had complete insight into his previous births, into countless cycles of birth and death that had preceded his life. And in the second watch of the night, his mind embraced the fullest understandings of the laws of karma, 
he saw this whirlwind, this hurricane of people pursuing life in a way that only created more and more of the suffering that they were trying to avoid. And in the third watch of the night, his mind penetrated to the deepest degree the understanding of suffering. He saw the cause of suffering and he saw the path out of the way, out of suffering. And it said that as the morning star came up at dawn, that was the moment of his full illumination, the moment of perfect enlightenment for him. Time's moving on, so I'll be a little brief on this one. But there are lots of flowers and the garlands, and uh, it said that flowers sprang up everywhere, exhaling perfume like celestial incense. And in the depths of the cosmos, the pitch black hells, which not even the light of seven suns had formerly been able to illuminate, were flooded with radiance. The perfect one remained sitting at the foot of the Bodhi tree for several days experiencing the bliss of nirvana. He thought to himself, done was all that needed to be done. I'm going to have to make this a lot shorter, a shorter life than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, for 40 years, he taught the Dharma in India. Hundreds and thousands of nuns and monks practiced meditation in the monasteries that he began. They also followed him wherever he went. Thousands and thousands of people, according to the scriptures, were enlightened over the years. He was a great teacher. One of the things that he was able to do was he was able to see that particular way in which the minds of each of his nuns or monks were clouded. And he was able to give them that perfect meditation for their minds that enabled the clouds to clear and for them to have complete insight into the nature of things. One of his most eloquent teachings, there was a monk sitting in front of him and he saw with the power of his mind exactly what the monk needed to see. And he picked up a flower and he held the flower and the, the monk contemplated the flower and as it Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.